You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by our other co-host, Aaron Duncan. Zach had obligations this week that he could not get out of, uh, so Aaron and I decided to take uh, to take on this puppy ourselves this week and uh, to do something a little bit different and we are we're going to be doing something a little bit different today than what than what we've been doing we're kind of in between series just finished with a biographical series on Niebuhr where we went through Gary Dorian's biographical sketch on Niebuhr and then we interviewed Dr. Dorian went through Jeremy Sabella's biography on Niebuhr and then we interviewed Sabella twice actually so if you haven't listened to those go back and check those out those are really good I think for kind of contextualizing Niebuhr in his own history. And we're about to start Niebuhr's uh, Beyond Tragedy next week when Zach rejoins us. So being in between series, we decided to spice things up a little bit. We're going to be examining one of Niebuhr's greatest influences, the Danish philosopher, the Danish gadfly himself, Soren Kierkegaard. If you made a list of Niebuhr's greatest influences, it would include at the tippy top, thinkers like Augustine, William James, John Calvin, but then there's kind of a secondary tier that includes more explicitly existentialist philosophers who he's going to lean on greatly once we get into the late 30s and early 40s. They're going to be paramount for Niebuhr in bringing about kind of the full maturity of his thought, and Kierkegaard is clearly one of those figures. And we're going to be reading today a book review Niebuhr wrote in 1941. So this is right after he presents Nature and Destiny of Man for the Gifford Lectures, um, where he heavily uses Kierkegaard. And the book review is on Kierkegaard's concluding unscientific postscript, which was just translated into English for the first time when Niebuhr wrote this book review for it. But Aaron and I are not going to be going on this side quest alone. We're going to be needing a little bit more Kierkegaardian firepower to slay this dragon. So we invited on the show a good friend of ours, the recently minted Dr. Jason Hudson. I say recently minted because he just successfully defended his dissertation. So welcome, Jason. Welcome. Thank you for welcoming me. Thank you for welcoming me. <laughs> We're just being cordial, man. <laughs> Happy to be here with you guys. Jason's a good friend of both of ours. I, we were colleagues um, a couple times over at a few different schools. I actually interviewed him uh, for one of his positions. Um, but uh, Jason, if you don't mind, can you explain your background a bit and uh, what got you interested in Kierkegaard? Uh, I can. I was a master's student studying philosophy and I was a Christian. I grew up in conservative evangelical churches. And um, whenever I would tell, on several occasions, I would tell someone that I was studying philosophy, they would um, respond uh 
with uh, some some doubt about the likelihood of an evangelical Christian studying philosophy and just really saw that as like the realm of um, skepticism, atheism, whatever. And uh, as I encountered Kierkegaard for the first time, it was so the first thing I ever read was his fear and trembling. And I, I remember reading maybe the first chapter and I was thinking, this guy really hates Abraham, uh, man. Like, why does he hate Abraham so much? And then I read it again and I realized, oh, he really loves Abraham. <laughs> um, and, you know, even now looking back, I'm not so sure. I mean, he at least seem, sees him as emblematic of a movement that uh, lots of people are claiming to make. And um, he's saying, you haven't made it like Abraham. You haven't made this movement of eternity, um, uh, the leap. And so, uh, yeah, as I was hearing on the one hand, you know, some pushback from studying philosophy as if it was a distraction or something that we shouldn't waste our time with this or that it would be dangerous or would lead to atheism or something along those lines. And then reading Kierkegaard and seeing just the dissonance between those two things, I wanted to write about, uh, so my master's thesis, I wanted to write about some aspect of uh, philosophy in the Bible. And so I settled on reading the book of Ecclesiastes with Kierkegaard as a sort of a interlocutor. And so, uh, yeah, my master's thesis is something like Ecclesiastes and its author through a Kierkegaardian lens or something like that. that's the title uh, roughly. Um, and relied heavily on sickness unto death um, uh, and another uh, lesser known book called stages along life's way where he, he, he sounds a whole lot like Ecclesiastes and especially his reflections on death and that sort of thing. So in that sense, I, I, I mean, I've, I love Kierkegaard from the first time I read him, I was reading all, um, studying a lot of modern philosophy and um, he, the way he was literary and funny and um, uh, just a, just a wonderful witty writer. Um, so I was attracted to him compared to somebody like, you know, when you've just been reading like Leibniz or, uh, yeah you know Berkeley or Hegel I mean Hegel right um and of course I was attracted to the um to the existentialists because of their emphasis on life and passion and just sort of living and not um not just ideas and figuring out some of the some of these boring ontological debates and things like that um and then through Kierkegaard through that master's thesis I um I came across a book by a French thinker named Jacques Ellul, who um, wrote a reflection on Ecclesiastes in which he was saying all the stuff that I wanted to say uh, better than I could have ever said it. And he relied heavily on Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard was one of his uh, um, biggest influences. And I ended, I went on to do my PhD. Uh, one of the figures of my PhD is um, Jacques Ellul. And so I have not been steeped in the world of Kierkegaard for some time, but I have been in the world of uh, Jacques Ellul, whose major influence is Kierkegaard, and in many ways um, just takes up Kierkegaard's uh, thought and and especially structures, uh, especially things like dialectic, and maybe we'll get into this later, but um, things like dialectic, things like the emphasis on the individual against the, what, he, what, what, what Ellul calls mass man, uh, I think Kierkegaard calls the crowd. Um, good. So let's get into it. In the um, in the opening paragraph, Niebuhr gets into a lot about the importance of this translation, and it's something that we don't really think about. 
um, but Kierkegaard was having an influence on American society and American theology um, before many of his works were even translated um, by way of people like Karl Barth. Um, so thinking broadly here, do you all think these actual translations are going to impact American theology uh, just by looking at kind of when they came out here in the late 30s, early 40s, uh, and perhaps some of the movements in theology following? Is, is your question basically, will the translations of these, affect how, how they have affected theology since then? Yeah, looking at, I guess, the history yeah. of theology after this. Um, question. After gets translated. What kind of impact is this going to have? Yeah. But your question is about the timing of it, not the translation yeah where they fit in the historically rather than this particular translation by uh david swinson or you right, know, like that, right that it's Just the fact that kierkegaard is finally kind of being translated into english what kind of impact is this going to have well i mean i think and we're, we're just, just speculating yeah. here. you know just totally I think we're thinking broadly obviously from neighbors perspective he's taking this as a human a momentous win for Amer American theology and philosophy that you're going to have a lot more ability to engage with Kierkegaard on a personal level than is um, available to him at the moment via Bart and all this people but if you think about Martin Luther King Jr. for instance as well who I, I think he was also slightly a fan of Kierkegaard um, is that true yeah cool yeah I have, right I have no idea. I've never made that connection in my mind before. But I, I've read a few of his sermons um, on hope, and I think he references Kierkegaard a few times. Um, but he has an engagement with Kierkegaard on a personal level there as well. So you have, on one hand, just theologies and philosophy students being able to engage Kierkegaard on mass, but then you have like really important social figures in American history being able to engage with Kierkegaard on a very personal level as well. Yeah. Any thoughts on that, Jason? Yeah. I mean, so you can tell me, um, Cliff, from a uh, like biblical studies perspective, I mean, uh, are we in the time where bolt mania is the norm, um, where historical critical method is the norm? Uh, I, you know, not being a specialist in that, I would assume so. Right. And uh, and here comes Kierkegaard saying, um, if we're taking an objective approach to the word of God, that doesn't get us to Christianity because we're treating the scripture, um, fr from a distance as like critical observers. We're too distanced from it. We're treating it in some ways. I mean, the metaphor uh, that I have heard and like, is that, you know, if you have a, a dead body, you autopsy that body by cutting it up. And it's sort of the same thing about the word of God. If it's a living and active word that, that confronts me as the reader or as the hearer, um, that's different from treating it like a dead object that we can dissect. Mm -hmm. And we understand it better by almost treating it like a scientific subject. And that's what he's getting at in unscientific postscript is that, that a system of, of thinking, a system of ethics doesn't get us to Christianity. Um, it seems like if I'm trying to place it historically that there is a shift, uh, of course, I mean, through BART, um, but there is a shift away from the historical critical method toward a kind of uh, more holistic view of the word as confronting the reader 
as a whole person. I mean, so, you know, in Kierkegaard's language, the, the single individual standing in this kind of transparent relationship to, to God, mm-hmm. um, that it, that it requires more, um, commitment on the, like you, the, the individual has to be, uh, in, in, passionately involved. I mean, so of course this is the, the kind of, uh, I mean, so it, I'm, maybe there's a difference here between what's going on in Europe and what's going on in the United States, where so much of the confessing church and um, some of the ethical things that are being confronted in that um, World War II era may become to the United States in the civil rights era. Um, but the idea is that we're not treating the text as something, we're not treating the Bible as a, as a cold text to be de- dissected, but it's something that calls us to act. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great question. That's a great. This answer. is a really good point because uh, I think what you're getting at, Jason, is like if you're thinking alongside character here for a moment, to do philosophy is not just to abstractly view a thing, a problem, and just figure it out, but it is something to be lived through and with. The problem itself is something intimately tied to us, and he gets into this where he critiques professors of the history of philosophy as if you could like just view philosophy from a historical lens and like figure it out he's like these aren't real philosophers they're just people who are just kind of telling you what philosophy has been like but to do philosophy is something much deeper i guess you probably that's probably why i mean what caused bart i mean it it was kind of his his transition obviously preceded world war ii but he was learning under adolf von harnack who was like this really just what Aaron just described this very cold. It was, it was almost like you, you viewed scripture kind of like syllogistically, like it's a problem to be solved. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let, okay. So I think that I wanted to ask that question because I do think that the 1940s, obviously we got the war, but this is going to be a very pivotal time in the Academy where there, we're going to start seeing some of these cracks that we saw before represented by Bart um, and, uh, and Bruner, Niebuhr, uh, Tillich. And then we see kind of those cracks just really tear down the old guard of modernism in the academy, the old ways of teaching philosophy, the old ways of teaching politics, the old ways of teaching science, or, or I don't know, I don't even know, psychology maybe. Um, now we're getting into a more heightened personalism, more heightened personality, uh, more heightened experience, existence, uh, sense of self, self-awareness um, that kind of goes over and supplants kind of the cold foundationalism of, of truths that are external to ourselves. Uh, so there is a big watershed moment there that Niebuhr just happens to be writing about this Kierkegaardian translation just coming in. So it, I don't think it's too crazy to just presume this is a, this is an important moment for Kierkegaard, for Niebuhr and for uh, it's probably, we could say it's a, it's an important because Niebuhr was a towering theologian at this time in America. This is going to be probably a very red um, uh, book review if you're going to be reading uh, any book review at this time where you have this key figure breaking into the United States and is kind of being handed into us by Niebuhr and, and this book review. 
Um, and you can, you will, we'll see this. There's still some very firm kind of Americanisms in there or uh, American um, theology, pragmatism, you know, that we're going to see in here. This uh, he's Niebuhr wants to protect kind of this natural theology. That's a part of uh, the American tradition, but you're going to see him swinging the door wide open because a lot of what he talks about in this is going to appear again in nature and destiny of man which he's given the lecture at the Gifford uh, lectures, but he is yet to publish that stuff. So we're getting kind of a foretaste of some of, it, of some of Niebuhr's major contributions in Nature and Destiny of Man by way of Kierkegaard here. So I've kind of split this up, see if this is okay with you guys. I've kind of split up this article into three sections. Niebuhr's kind of conceptual description of the book Niebuhr's praises of the book and then Niebuhr's criticism of the book. Uh, and we'll kind of go through each of these um, in order. So first of all, how does Niebuhr kind of describe conceptually what's going on? Tell me about this binary, I guess, between kind of systems and our finiteness or whatever. So much of philosophy up to the point of Kierkegaard primarily in Kierkegaard's critique or what he's writing against and the majority of his is um, synonymous works um, and the works that bear his name um, is against like rationalism is what Niebuhr calls panlogism is Hegel's sort of view that the absolute or absolute reality is reason and Niebuhr is quick and, to make the point that it's Hegel he's critiquing, but yeah. it's it's much more larger than just Hegel. It's, it's broadly rationalists in general. So yeah. like it spills over into all that. Um, so the way in which Hegel and these other rationalists um, kind of conceived the project of philosophy was to describe the way the, the world worked in a, in a way. Um, to provide like, I guess like you could probably say like Einstein's theory of everything maybe might be a quite a good little analogy to it. Um, but the one thing that Niebuhr quotes from in the uh, including, uh, concluding unscientific postscript, and I'll, I'll put here, is that the rationalist project or Hegel's project um, existence separates and holds the various moments of existence discreetly apart systematic thought consists of the finality which brings them together so the project of systematizing is bringing all these discrete moments together to make sense out of them whereas the sort of existential list like Kierkegaard is more or less trying to find out what these moments mean which is kind of like what uh, Jason's talking about with his phenomenology yeah that's good a systematic or scientific uh, approach to knowledge is objective so objectivity needs a distance that you have a, a a subject and an object that implies a distance you pull back and you observe and this is the scientific method you observe uh test repeat making a hypothesis and that sort of thing um there is kind of an archimedean assumption here that you can be outside of a system enough to critique it as an outsider and so um, he's essentially saying that this kind of approach to knowledge, which is it's it's a it's a whole package that includes an ontology or at least an anthropology that assumes that 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 the way we grasp knowledge is through reason. So we are, you know, as Jamie Smith has said, thinking 
things, you know, uh, or brains on a stick, <laughs> uh, these kind of disembodied uh, rational things. And our goal then is to link up our thinking with abstract principles that can be achieved through reason. Of course, yeah, and I think the Niebuhr even like, I, I don't know if it's Niebuhr quoting or using a term that Kierkegaard uses, but this is classic Niebuhr where Niebuhr even calls it a pride. Like it is a pride over the earth type of thing, standing right. over the earth. Right. Yeah, and, and, and actually I just want to share this real quick and I'll back to you, Jason. This is a great quote that just smacks of Kierkegaard from Nature and Destiny of Man. Niebuhr says, talking about the human situation, he says, human self-consciousness is a high tower looking upon a large and inclusive world. It vainly imagines that it is the large world which it beholds and not a narrow tower insecurely erect amidst the shifting sands of the world. So we have this objectivism, mm. this kind of illusion that we are above the world without realizing that we are standing on the shifting sands of reality. Yeah, I mean, relevant here, I think, is... Um... Heidegger's concept of Dasein, which of course Heidegger stole everything he ever said from Kierkegaard. And so the idea is that- Smith would say he stole it from Augustine, but that would be an interesting discussion. Anyway, keep going. I just thought I would make a really sweeping declarative statement <laughs> with no justification at all. <laughs> which is what we do on podcasts. That's right. So, <laughs> who's who's going to hold me accountable for that? <laughs> You're not. Um, <laughs> So the, the idea of Dasein is this fundamental aspect of human being, which is being there or being here. It, 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 it means that we are always already uh, situated within uh, a concrete reality. And that, I think, for Kierkegaard, that being here, being uh, finite, is a part of what he calls the, the synthesis, that the self is a synthesis which relates itself to itself. You know, Kierkegaard right. says in this really... Uh, kind of hey, in a way, kind of mocking Hegel's um, just obscure way of writing. But 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 so he talks about these different um, sort of aspects of a synthesis, which would be um, possibility and necessity, for example. And so to dis to despair is to will to not be the self and mm -hmm. to not be this synthesis in which there is necessity. Um, and it seems like what he's saying is the philosopher lives in abstractions and doesn't will to be a concrete finite self. That is a, a kind of despair. Mm -hmm. seems like that's what Niebuhr is highlighting here. I mean, so I marked on one uh, section, if I could read uh, this, but it cannot be a system for any existing spirit. System and finality correspond to one another, but existence is precisely the opposite of finality. It may be seen from a purely abstract point of view that system and existence are incapable of being thought together, because in order to think existence at all, systematic thought must be um, systematic thought must think itself abrogated and hence as not existing. Existence separates and holds the various moments of existence discreetly apart. Systematic thought consists of the finality which brings them together. Um, seems like he's getting at this synthesis that Kierkegaard holds up of necessity and possibility. Um, or we could probably talk about being and becoming. Um, but the idea of being abstracted from uh, place, you said the earth. Uh, the other figure in my PhD thesis, by the way, is Wendell Berry, who has this huge emphasis on um, on place, which links people together 
in a way where where um, ideas can become actionable, where you can actually um, love a neighbor, a, a neighbor. Um, <laughs> uh, it's 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 where love becomes possible, ethics becomes possible when you are, and and so essentially. Kierkegaard is interested in making people accountable for what they say they believe. Mm-hmm. Abstraction bears no weight on me. Um, another human person does, and I have to make a decision. I have to throw myself uh, into uh, some action uh, in, in when I am uh, living, when I'm not despairing to, w- to be a finite human person. Could, um, could, we, could we draw um, this kind of I don't know if it's an analogy or it might be pretty explicitly tied. The is ought distinction of there's a certain kind of knowledge where you can know what is um, and that, but that doesn't, that isn't necessarily tethered to what you ought to do or how you ought to live or something like that. Uh, so for instance, I could give you statistics about, you know, children suffering or something like that. Uh, those statistics just tell you what is. It, it doesn't compel you in any way to do something. And when the statistics part is important because it kind of claims this objectivity, you know, this l- higher sense of what's going on in the world. Oh, we got all these stats that tell us this and that and the other. Uh, and I am a stat within these many stats. Uh, but does that personalize your relations enough, you know, to actually s- speak to any reality that's here? Or is it just kind of absorbing you into this irrelevant way of understanding the world? Yeah, stats, I would say that stats actually do the opposite. They remove you from the sense of responsibility. Yeah. They abstract. So stats are kind of like a system. Like we can use stats as kind of an analogy for our listeners, for systems. And then we could, of course, we could get into media ecology and talk about the ways in which um, media um, literally the 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 use of tele as in telescope for television uh telephone it's about um making something far away come into focus and so stats absolutely serve uh the the function of make giving a sense of morality or a sense of concern uh for something that you are not um able to respond to ethically um and of course this leads to we're back to propaganda and the sort of mass uh, massification of people in which we can feel like we've done something because we voted um, for someone or we posted something on social media Mm -hmm. and we feel like we've uh, participated ethically um, when we've participated, we've participated in perpetuating a system that allows people to feel distant from their ethical responsibility. That's really interesting. So if you look at kind of social media as kind of this thingifying us or whatever, really what it is, what it amounts to is kind of what the experience feels like is just people shouting into the abyss, like like unable or not doing, you know, not actually doing anything, just kind of displaying their angst projecting it into this uh, in, into this objective reality that has no bearing on on reality. Yeah, they're doing what the system allows them to do. Yeah. yeah. But they're also taking part, they're also um, building up the system as well. It's quite like yeah. ironic. So they're shouting into the abyss. And then once our social media platforms categorize us based upon what we believe, what we say, <laughs> what we do 
they're through all stats and algorithms stats. and stuff. They're, they're building up stats yeah. and algorithms based upon our own and in, in preferences and yeah. 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 I mean, I think, you know, of course, again, I keep going back to this idea of the, the single individual. I mean, that was Kierkegaard wanted on his great gravestone, the individual. <laughs> and, and so to think about what, a little dramatic, I mean, come on. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Of course it's, yeah, it's very, it's, it's a bit juvenile in it's some ways, but, yeah. but, but he's pressing against, um, <laughs> He's pressing against that Lutheran society that is making everyone a herd. And to think about, I mean, as as kind of juvenile as it can seem, I think we need that impulse in an age in which we are being um, uh, formed by algorithms, that algorithms aren't just making sense of us, they're also forming us. And to have some kind of way of resisting um and of course, there are ways that we can do that, including not participating, um, intentionally having conversation partners across uh, ideological bounds and things like that. But these are ways of maintaining our selfhood as individuals that aren't reduced to uh, algorithms. And yeah, it does. It sounds like something, uh, you know, you'd say in high school, uh, you know, we'll uh, get into this here in a little bit. But I don't like as the like the pragmatist in me thinks yes, those are evil. Like th- these, these are things that we are kind of perpetuating the system and kind of the only true act of freedom is resistance or taking ourselves out of the system or something like that. But the pragmatism, the pragmatism in me thinks, yeah, there is an element of that, but there are also still methods within the machine of kind of turning the machine in on itself. There, there are ways of fighting towards something like a democratic freedom or some kind of lever of power to change society, even through something as ridiculous as Twitter or Facebook or something like that. I think it's a calling and I am not called. And so the onus is on you to figure out how to be the one on Twitter who is not, you're of on Twitter, but not of Twitter. That's actually an interesting way of putting it. That's good. It is a call. Yeah. I, 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 I think that makes a lot of sense. Some people are not. Yeah. How do you how do you remove yourself though from the whole thing? Well, that's you, that's the rule's big problem is there's yeah. there's no there's really just the eschaton. I mean, is ultimately how you relieve yourself. Oh gosh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would say I would say on social media, um, there are um, it is easier than you think. I mean, there's this uh, I've heard I'm, I'm an old man now, but I've heard that the kids uh, have this kind of insult where they tell each other to go touch grass. Have you guys heard this? Yeah. Yeah. OK, you guys are you guys are in that world. So maybe that's a, something you see. But it's like, yeah, go touch some grass. Uh, you know, um, so, yeah, you, you can just check out. I mean, there are things where I think like like the ways in which a, um, you know, some material aspects of society. um impose themselves on us roads for example you can't you can't check out um i remember cliff what was your you used to have the assignment where you would give someone an a if they could um avoid like the uh, the grid well it was basically like if you can avoid any company that like trades on the dow for a right then you get an a in my class and the point of course yeah the point the point was you can't right Without, I mean, you'd have to. Somebody did it with it with serious exceptions that I allowed. Okay. But yeah, was but that yeah, that it was all to prove a point? That's funny. Is that was was I right about the details of that assignment? 
Oh, you were right on. Yeah. yeah, yeah you okay. can't use any company on the Dow. Um, and it, it was really like I was willing to do it, you know, to give an A if somebody could do this. But it was really just a way of discussing the impossibility of that, you know. Yeah. Like and so that leads me to believe as kind of the pragmatist I am that there has to be more options than just leaving you know, and just resisting it all together. You have to be able to do something within the system to a degree, uh, governed potentially by something, by an ideal that is that is not controlled by it. We'll get into that more here in a second. Um, okay, good. So Niebuhr brings up a really cool point about um, the kind of two children of Hegel, the two responses to Hegel. And I just wanted to get your thoughts real quick on this. So uh, Marx and Kierkegaard, I mean, as far apart as you could possibly get, right, uh, on the spectrum of kind of selfhood and, uh, and even religion. Um, and they are both responding critically uh, to Hegel. Of course, Marx is going to incorporate some Hegel, quite a bit of Hegel into his own thinking, but not before he has his way with it with Feuerbach and materialism. But uh, can you guys speak to this in some way? Like... I guess you could speak to, I guess, the irony or the, or you could speak to something about Hegel himself. Like what, what was it that could birth, you know, these two thinkers and what were their responses to Hegel? I mean, is, is Hegel a bit of a Rorschach test in some ways? Like, I mean, is he, uh, I, as a young philosophy student, Hegel was this like beast that you had to conquer and I'm not sure that I understand Hegel beyond that, like undergraduate philosophy, understanding about history and Geist and um, the, the. I think even critical. I think even uh, Kierkegaard and is it fear and trembling? He comments on how unreadable Hegel is. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So it's like it's somebody like that. Um, I mean, I put Derrida on the same uh, boat where it's like you read it, it, it becomes a bit of a Rorschach test because there are words there. There is something to engage with, but it seems as if you can you can make of it what you uh, what you will. Um, I would say, at least from my reading, Kierkegaard and Marx are I mean, Kierkegaard is very much opposed to Hegel. And as you've already said, Marx is at least appropriating some of what Hegel's doing to try to to try to see this. I mean, Kierkegaard is dialectic as well, but a dialectic at the individual level, um, dialectic in the sense of like a conversation which personalizes the other, right? A conversation and a dialectic in that that the etymological sense of a dialogue. Um, a dialogue creates dialogue partners. Um, Langdon Gilkey, when he's describing Niebuhr, and I think that this is what Niebuhr and Kierkegaard have in common, Langdon Gilkey calls it a vertical dialectic. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's very Illulian as well. That, that um, the, uh, the, the recipient of the word of God is subjective, sub, sub, uh, personified, uh, becomes a person, is given the dignity of a conversation partner by the divine. And you can uh, find it even in something like the doctrine of the incarnation or atonement or something like that, where, yeah, there is this, yeah, you, you see this kind of clash of, of very intimate symbols that mean something to you. Right. And you have to kind of, you kind of left to deal with it. Yeah. yeah. So to the extent that Marx has a historic, hist uh, historically unfolding dialectic, it's, it's very much the conflict of, you know, classes. 
it's the con it's a conflict of groups of people defined based on their orientation toward capital or production or something like that um the dialectic that that takes that that Kierkegaard appropriates from uh Hegel is a very I mean he, he uses the same kind of language but he he doesn't have this sort of like his it's almost like history be damned the individual is what matters the 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 person who stands even against a, a, a system or a machine that that seems to be overwhelming that would just mow them over because right. it's 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 something that uh, a, a person by themselves just taking a stand and and this is where we get into the ethic the Kierkegaard's ethics which I think a central aspect of it is communicability right so you can't justify yourself because there's no system of language to say why you made that choice. Of course, this is Abraham, uh, Kierkegaard's dealing with Abraham. So to stand against what seems impossible, but to remain a, a, an individual while you do it, to stand against a system as a person um, is the kind of thing that you can't justify to anyone else. It's a leap. And um, the question was about Marx though. And I think like, to me, like that's what I see the, the major difference where Marx is appropriating this language of dialectic but he's he's taking the his the inev the intent historical history which has an intentionality and just shifting it into the realm of sociology and saying that um this dialectic now is between groups of people and uh classes or um somehow based on their relationship to capital or production yeah good what what do you think aaron what yeah how would you respond to this to hegel's children what's going on here I wouldn't even know where to go after that really, really excellent. <laughs> it was good. Yeah, Jason's, Jason's, Jason's was great. It's great, man. Um, so, I, I mean, I think one of the obvious sort of disconnects between Kierkegaard and Marx is probably what Niebuhr takes away from Kierkegaard much more is his value on the sort of paradoxical relationship between transcendence and finitude, whereas yeah. in Marx that isn't really present. It's, it's still the sort of marching forth of history towards some sort of goal and ironically and Niebuhr was a Marxist yeah exactly well I mean again it's probably like the weird splinters of like his historical thought like Marx influences sorry Hegel influences Marx mm -hmm. and you know and they go into another one and split off and let, let me tell you about this so the most challenging thing I ever read in grad school was Ludwig Feuerbach he just rocked my world. Like this whole idea of theology as anthropology. It nothing made me doubt God, I think, more than that. And then we get to class after reading this, and the professor's like, I'll tell you who loved Feuerbach, Karl Barth. And I was like, What? Like, how is this? How does this work? Because Feuerbach presents this incredible argument for materialism. Uh, even explains like our religious uh sentimentality um and our desire for this and why it would make sense that we would develop these intricate theologies to explain human problems uh and then for then bart ends up loving this guy and I, I i can't help but think that there is kind of a deeper connection here between maybe kierkegaard and marx i almost wonder if i think jason brings up a good point that that hegel is impossible and he's and he's kind of like an inkblot test a little bit and you kind of see what you want to see um but if you boil hegel down to kind of this antithesis or the thesis into the synthesis to this very simple thing 
his thesis and antithesis were always like moving through history were always kind of material and spirit, right? Kind of, uh, and the spirit was always kind of the synthesis, like kind of pushing history forward type of thing. I'm wondering in just the kind of human that both end up with, the kind of human that Marx ends up with and the kind of human that Kierkegaard ends up with at the end of the day, almost look like they're, dra they're, they're drawn out from the dialectic on two separate sides. So with Marx, you get this flattened out materialistic individual, you know, this very materialistic, economic, sociologically defined human being. With Kierkegaard, you get this heightened and spiritualized individual. So it almost seems like they took the two sides of Hegel's dialectic of material and spirit and kind of just like stole one, disregarded the other, and then built up one. It's an interesting concept. I would say that Kierkegaard is reacting against the diminishment of the individual along those kinds of materialistic lines. And so elevating the... Um, the, the the spirit uh the this this life lived in transparency before uh before god um and then mark seems to do the same thing in reverse yeah Get i guess what spirit what i'm still aware of is the is the the synthesis that kierkegaard is saying that to will to be um a spirit or an angel or something is not to will to be the self that is given mm -hmm. which is despair um and so i think that as much as so it's like whenever you're responding to an error you tend to emphasize the other side of that to press against it and i think that's what he's doing in you know copenhagen is saying you know every everyone needs to elevate their sense of what it means to be a christian um, yeah, so Kierkegaard still finds a dialectic there, like at the end of the day, like I, Niebuhr brings out the point that he's still not a mystic, you know, so I think that, and this kind of gets into the praise section of, of this article, where for both Kierkegaard and Niebuhr, neither of them want to lose the person, okay, uh, they both want to heighten personhood, and they both want to protect personhood. So on the one hand, they don't want to obscure the self inside some kind of abstract system of rationality uh, like Hegel does. On the other hand, they also don't want the self to be swallowed up into some undifferentiated divine unity like in mysticism. Uh, yeah, that's what you get in mysticism. And what kind of keeps Kierkegaard from slipping into either one according to Niebuhr is Kierkegaard's anxious and paradoxical stature. Uh, it never allows the self to become absorbed into any either unity, whether we're talking about the crowd in town or at church, we're talking about or we're talking about Hegel's abstract system, or we're talking about, you know, the mysticism of uh, Meister Eckhart or something like that. Um, the, all of these positions end up losing the self somewhere. So what Kierkegaard tries grounding and everything in is the human situation, which is anxious and paradoxical. It makes me think, I know Cliff, that we've talked about this before. Um, <laughs> the, there's a scene in that movie, Waking Life, where that group of guys are just walking around like saying slogans and they're just walking, you know, presumably to nowhere, just spouting off things. Yeah. And then there's an old man who's climbed up a pole <laughs> 
they come across the old man and they're like, what are you doing up there? He's like, I don't know. And it's showing that these kind of two errors, one is, um, I mean, we could say like doing or being, um, and one is all ideas. The other one is all action, um, which, which also makes me think of Dostoevsky. And I mean, there's of course, like, and uh, overlap there and influenced uh, and Nietzsche uh, this book Zarathustra he comes down from the mountain sees this monk out in the wilderness just completely irrelevant like uh, it, it reminds me of the guy on the on the telephone pool yeah right <laughs> and the guy's like silly old fool hasn't heard yet the god's dead or something yeah. like that and he keeps yeah. on going yeah but I think that's that's kind of what what you're getting at and I think that to keep coming back to this idea of like um if there are if there are ditches on either side of the street, one is to will to be a spirit, the other one is just to be materialist and who we are at the most fundamental level as a self is determined by, you know, in that Marxist sense Nature by, or by economics. Yeah, I mean it's that Marxist kind of realism. Um, uh, both for Kierkegaard, I think, are uh, lead to is a kind of despairing to not be you know, that religious self. I mean, and so I think we could bring in here that the movements of faith that he describes in fear and trembling and maybe in rep repetition as well, uh, where it's like, he describes like leaping and landing at the same time and continually making the same movement, um, that, that it is both at the same time mm -hmm. continually. And, and never, this is where never we get, we get kind of a big theme in existentialist writing of theology and things like this, where like Niebuhr calls this state homelessness and Tillich calls the state alienation. Oh. You know, this is this like uh, base, like kind of base human situation. Um, what they're constantly being drawn back to is kind of this anxious state that's not fully in or out of anything not completely at home ever, you know? Yeah. I mean, actually you triggered some thoughts with the word alienation. It's a major theme in Marx um, is the alienated, um, the, the person who's alienated by um, essentially, you know, capital and that, that uh, relationships are mediated by capital. And, you know, it's this thing that dominates society in a Which way. Which is that, a great argument, right? Yeah. But, but I do think like what you end up with, at least in Marxism, whether or not this is reflected in Marx's own work or not, what you end up with in Marxism is an individual that is very reduced um, to, a, to a kind of social function. Um, and so, how, yeah, I'm not sure how that works in Marx. I don't know him well enough to know if there's a, um, like, what does an unalienated individual look like uh, when, when because he never really critiques uh, the technological society, he never really critiques uh, the reduction of, uh, I mean, so labor is still this sort of major function of the human and progress is still the major narrative in Marx. Yeah. So we, we see kind of what Niebuhr's trying to get out. We see what Niebuhr loves and maybe you don't, Dace, cause you haven't maybe read enough or read much Niebuhr. I don't know. I don't know how much Niebuhr you've read. Welcome you to love thy book once. And I, uh, yeah. Did you read it? You loaned me what the nature and destiny of man, and I, yeah. uh, you were like, you got to read this opening paragraph. Oh, uh, what a book to get someone started on! I mean, looking back on that, that's like, like I view that book as a freaking masterpiece. But well, I, I remember that, I think, so the first line I remember you just being like, it's like a punch in the gut because I think it was something like, man is and always has been his most vexing problem or something. That like is that. verbatim what it says. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's how much Niebuhr I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's exactly right. I mean, and that's what Kierkegaard is doing. I mean, kind of the human being has a problem unto themselves. Uh, never quite at home, but this is, this is base. You know, this, this is, this is what the human is. And if you don't stay here, Niebuhr talks about finding the serenity uh, to deal with these incongruities in life. But uh, if you go off in any other way, um, you are, you're going to lose the self. You are going, according to Niebuhr, you're going to become prideful and, or, or not give a crap um, about anything. Um, So it's, uh, you have to kind of exist in this state of anxiety, you know, but that's, that's human. That's, that's what it means to be a human being. So let's get into criticisms. We only have about 10 minutes left. So I figured that this might take a little bit longer than 10 minutes, but let's, let's just go there because um, this could, I, I, I realize that I'm speaking to two people who really love Kierkegaard and are at minimum, like in Aaron's case, very sympathetic to kind of the Bartian uh, critique. But uh, yeah, so I, I, this this should be an interesting discussion. Let me read the the last two paragraphs because this is where you get like the key difference between Niebuhr and Bart. The key difference between Niebuhr and Kierkegaard, even though he borrows so much and is indebted to both of them, I would say. So he says this: Kierkegaard always skirts the abyss of the morbid and the eccentric in his profundities, and sometimes he fails to skirt it and becomes absurd. Thus, the validity of his inward truth is vitiated by his insistence that it must have no relation to general knowledge of the external world or any philosophical attempt to understand the meaning of existence. If a truth seems to be probable, according to Kierkegaard, it ceases to be a truth of faith. Faith is belief in the improbable. Thus, faith is set in contradiction to human knowledge. This is key right here. Niebuhr is going to sink his teeth into this. Faith is set in contradiction to human knowledge. This is the element in Kierkegaard's thought, which gave rise to the theology of Karl Barth. It is an exposition of the dictum, credo ut absurdum est. It represents Protestant thought in its most, most radical form and its tendency to be obscuritant in the realm of culture. By the way, Aaron, I don't know if you remember this, but Dorian makes this point when he's describing Bart versus Niebuhr is uh, that Bart is more fully, purely Protestant, which I think is an interesting, I always thought that was an interesting way of putting it. Mm. Bart is more, I, I think that that might mean that Niebuhr is drawing much more on enlightenment than Bart will allow. Um, Bart is pure Reformation, you know, pure Augustinian, um, where Niebuhr's kind of chumming it up a little bit with Enlightenment principles as well. However profound, so this is the last little part, however profound Kierkegaard's insights into the ultimate mysteries of the individual soul and his understanding of the anxieties of existence, which transcend all immediate fears of physical life, there is an element of perversity in his thought, which makes a synthesis of faith and reason seem wise by comparison. 
I wish he gave examples of the perversions, but basically this is, and I'll, I'll let you guys take it from here, but this, this is basically a critique of fideism. You know, so what, what, what what's y'all's response? Yeah, I was thinking if I could quote um, the great James Cone, what the F is Niebuhr talking about? <laughs> uh, that was uh, James Cone at the Niebuhr Society Conference. Me and Cliff are there. That's right. <laughs> American Academy of Religion, whatever year that was. Anyway. 2016 or something. 15. And That's amazing. So I say that jokingly because so the opening part so part one of concluding unscientific postscript is about the objectivity of christianity Mm -hmm. i don't i mean if you're making a list of fideist you probably put kierkegaard on there but i don't think he's a true fideist he's not an anti-rationalist um through kierkegaard He's, he's, he's very we can at least say okay maybe there is some gray areas there but he's very firm with his language and maybe he exaggerates maybe we could say that Kierkegaard does exaggerate sometimes I don't know yeah I think that we it's interesting that we've talked about Kierkegaard this long and we haven't really talked about the spheres of life um I think that when we come to the religious sphere so Kierkegaard just for the sake of saying it Kierkegaard has these three spheres the aesthetic sphere Um, the ethical sphere and the religious sphere and he would say that the religious person the knight of faith uh or the knight of uh yeah the knight of faith is this person that you can't i mean this is this wonderful literature in fear and trembling where he's like i suspected that i saw one once but you know it's like there's something maybe peeking through the cracks of the eternal but okay yeah when i looked closer it wasn't you know and it's like so i think when he's describing the religious sphere he's going to be more intense in this language that's going to sound like fideism but he and but he doesn't he doesn't just uh he doesn't pretend it's possible like i remember like all throughout fear and trembling he kind of says being abraham is impossible i think he makes that statement over and over yeah and it's so complex because he's also writing as uh as a pseudonym so like what is Kierkegaard himself saying in Fear and Trembling? Right. And what is Kierkegaard him, him like as a pseudonym, uh, like under a pseudonym, he's he's taking on these different personas, especially in the earlier uh, works. Um, in By the way, uh, ending with this concludings on Scientific Postscript was meant to be the final work of his writing career. I mean, it was meant to be the final work uh, of, of all of it. I mean, he ended up getting sort of drawn back into some public debates, which, which um, had him continue writing. And he, he took like a closer position to his own uh, self. But I mean, so he is kind of putting on these um, personalities as a way of thinking about the aesthetic, the ethical and the universal or the, uh, uh, the religious. And so, um, so, yeah, I mean, I think like what I, my, would you say that Niebuhr's misreading him? I have never read Kierkegaard as a pure fideist. I've read him as, um, I mean, so so to start with the objectivity uh, and he talks about like history. So we could talk about Christianity as a historical reality. He talks about scripture as 
um, a text to be studied, you know, that the, this is the objective mode of thinking about like it's objective. We think about it through rationality, that those aren't improper, that those don't lead to knowledge, but they don't lead to Christian, Christian becoming. Um, they don't lead to one be- engaging in this relationship with God in which one is becoming a Christian. Uh, it is, it, it doesn't, it doesn't engage the passions and the person at the level of, um, of subjectivity. So he's exaggerating to make this point, but, yeah. but what we see specifically in this relationship to the religious. Right. So, but this is an important point because, okay, we, it's one thing for us to sit here and debate over what he really meant. And was he just speaking, out of this pseudonym he created or something. But now when Niebuhr's writing, we have actual theologians being influenced by Kierkegaard. And we have people who are setting up like Bart's church dogmatics that does sound very Phidias. I mean, the, the way that he talks about revelation, it's almost like, um, it's almost like it is completely antithetical to kind of worldly reason or something like that. What that means, maybe it's still kind of uh, shrouded in a bit of, you know, language that can allow for some kind of point of contact between church and society or something like that. I don't know, but I'll tell you how he's taken. It's, it's, it is often taken into kind of a fideistic irrelevance or political irrelevance or, 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 kind of this it's almost like a despairing like we can't do anything about society type of language like how like a lot of the stuff does come out kind of like let's just kind of build our own enclaves you know i mean it, it, it might be just the consequence of the way kierkegaard does set up inwardness and what jason's saying is that you know it's kind of like with derrida he's misunderstood quite often when he says there's no there's nothing outside the text he's not denying that there's no world outside of it but people take him to say that um saying that with Kierkegaard he does admit there is something outside of this the individual to be known that we can or there are other people we can do but it's how we can communicate faith within reason there's something shared we can use as a tool to communicate with one another mm-hmm. but as Abraham he can't communicate his faith with other people. So that's probably, I think, maybe where Niebuhr is kind of seeing that divide, right? Yeah, well, I think with a guy like Niebuhr, his ultimate point, we've said it so many times on the show, is to clarify reality, is to clarify language, is to say what we actually mean. Um, And like, if there are kind of divisions, if there are kind of difficulties, we spell that those things out as much as we can. But it does seem like Kierkegaard is just the type that he's got a rhetoric about him. You know, he's got a certain way of writing these kind of prose, you know, and and honestly, Bart does, too. Like Bart, uh, if you read Bart, if you read his epistle to the Romans, um, his commentary, uh, he he's he says a lot of things in there that really don't have to do with Romans, for one thing. Uh, and for another thing, he uses a kind of language that kind of more than anything creates another world, um, another realm of language to understand this world, maybe. Um, but kind of detracts from clarity a little bit and all the ways that he tries to help 
us understand God, he kind of obscures our own language a little bit in so doing. So this, this is what I'm seeing in this, because we, we have some major players going on here. We have Niebuhr, whatever he says here, is going to be kind of obliquely pointed toward his great nemesis, is what Niebuhr's biographer calls him, Karl Barth. So everything he is writing here, it, he knows Bart's going to read it. He knows Bartians are going to read it. Um, and he knows that this world that is awaiting Kierkegaard is going to read it. So he, Niebuhr is going to be very clear with kind of where he draws his own line. So we could say that there's kind of, there's kind of three different levels here. There's Kierkegaard he's writing about, there's Bart he's writing about, and there's also Niebuhr trying to clarify his own thought on the subject. So I take this last part as him trying to clarify his own, you know, his own language about this, but also kind of maybe taking a shot at Bart and also uh, giving a certain interpretation of Kierkegaard that he wants people to have. Because Niebuhr doesn't want people to, to throw Kierkegaard out. He loves Kierkegaard, but we should read him though in this way. So Niebuhr shares with Kierkegaard in the quest of preserving the self because when you preserve the self you're also preserving freedom you're also preserving responsibility which Niebuhr is all about we have to maintain the sense of responsibility we have for this world but Niebuhr also wants to preserve ras rationality he has not abandoned reason completely I think what Niebuhr sees in some of the pacifists and evangelical churches and Bartians at the time uh, is this slide into otherworldliness and disinterestedness and irrationality even, um, basically apathy and possessing a kind of vulnerability to false prophets is how Niebuhr would put it. Um, I think a good discussion would be kind of on the irrationality that has come to possess uh, many on the right now and its relationship with conspiracy culture and anti-intellectualism. I think uh, there's something to be said there because once we take Bart, once we take, Kind of the scripture as this living document and and this uh and kind of taking on this kind of otherworldly these otherworldly language games that does kind of like distance ourselves a little bit from the times but that's just me reading into this um, but that i do think that that might make us vulnerable to conspiracy culture for niebuhr if there is no universal or not even uh universal perhaps just a maybe just a shared language or shared uh, rationality. But if there's no rationality through which theology can speak to and reason with the world, there comes with it some serious problems of irrelevance. Um, and Niebuhr as an ethicist, you know, he's very concerned with this. So Niebuhr calls Bart a fundamentalist because in his view, he's completely lost the point of contact between church and society. Um, and Niebuhr is a believer in natural theology. So, and without natural theology, Niebuhr loses a lot of his main contributions to society as well. His, his understanding of sin and idolatry and even grace uh, and how these concepts can play out in world governments and, and domestic and foreign policy. And I think this, I think his writing uh, bears that out. But with that comes a process where Niebuhr has to translate these Christian symbols into society by way of some kind of shared reason or rationality. We don't have to call it universal, but there has to be some kind of playground in which Niebuhr can, you know, uh, get his points across. And we'll just call that rationality. 
So yeah, I, I don't know what you guys think about that, but I, I just see Niebuhr as trying to protect his main way of talking to the world here. I just wonder if it's like the position of Kierkegaard within Fear and Trembling, that sometimes the individual rises ab above the universal. So yeah. there's that language of being above it. And faith not being, I think, uh, Stuart and that his that book I was telling you guys about um, earlier, he makes the point that um, he claims that faith is not something positive or concrete, but rather it is a paradox. It is a contradiction. Like Socrates' approach, this is negative. Nothing is really resolved, but rather the issue is left open as a problem. So, you know, I think kind of like what he views the Socratic project is, is that it's not a system. It's not something you can actually say anything positive about because Socrates in some of the dialogues doesn't actually provide an answer. Yeah. Um, but like with many of the thing, many of the, the faith examples that Kierkegaard is working through in the Bible, especially Abraham, is that there really is no answer at the end of this. Because if, if, you, if you try to provide a rationality to it, to the story of Abraham, you have to take the Kantian route to where you say Abraham uh, is messed up. Yeah. He's, a not, he's not an ethical guy. So that's the shared rationality. So, you know, how do you make, if from a Niebuhr perspective, how do you make sense of Abraham? Might be the Kierkegaard and Kierkegaardian rejoinder to that, you know? That's a good question. I think that he would probably see, find the uh, dichotomy uh, or find the dialectic within Abraham to find kind of the tension that is instructive to us. So I, I mean, the way the way that Niebuhr sometimes talks about the cross is kind of chilling, and and I don't, and by that I, I just mean like I don't know if I would use that kind of language about the cross in the same way because he he kind of makes the statement that at one point that like um, love always ends up in the cross and then. And then kind of like, we don't want to be on the cross. <laughs> you know? Like that's just being destroyed, you know, um, uh, by the powers that be. We want to influence power. So, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that he would probably bad talk Abraham quite a bit and say that's maybe an example of what we shouldn't do. Yeah, Aaron's definitely right that like, because Kierkegaard specifically addresses the issue of communicability or... I think he says something like um, Abraham cannot be mediated. There's no connection between Abraham's choice to sacrifice his son and a uh, a world outside of him. There's nothing rational going on here. No. Nothing that can and, be instructive. Right. And this is the point that he makes in the section on the teleological suspension of the ethical, where um, a universal ethic is a system that can be appealed to. Why, like So when I say, why did you make that choice? I appeal to a system which gives us a common language to say, let me, you know, I can justify my action by appealing to, I mean, of course, the, the common uh, or the, 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 the uh, most obvious example would be some sort of deontological um, uh, categorical imperative. <laughs> that's what I was like, what was yeah. your band's name? <laughs> Uh, anyway, Cliff was in a band called the Categorical Imperative. Um, and out. yeah, so you can be like, oh, let me appeal to the Categorical Imperative, which is a system to which we can agree. Or even if you don't agree, it's at least a system that I can appeal to to explain my behavior. 
Abraham doesn't have that. And, and Kierkegaard makes that explicit. And I think that's what you're getting at is so how do, how do, whether we're talking about Christians or the church, how do we live in the world in a way that there is a connection point to um, others, to outsiders? I'll we have to presume talking. some language, some mediation there. There's some kind of point of contact there. Yeah. Um, and ne for Niebuhr, he uses very biblical ways. So his Niebuhr's main way of connecting to the outside world is, is original sin. We are all sinners. That's his touchstone. And we're all idolaters. We're all prideful. Um, these are universal, uh, more, I don't know which you call them, uh, not mores. These are universal kind of uh, shared values. Some of that. Well, they're not values. You don't want to be prideful. You don't want to be idolatrous. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, so the <laughs> point is that there are these universal things you can look at Adolf Hitler and see the pride. You can look at Vladimir Putin and see Babel. You can look at yourself in the mirror and see Adam and Eve. You know, these are fundamental to reality. Like the Bible is explaining, it's revealing nature. Um, it's not just revealing another worldliness or a salvation plan, it's revealing nature to us and the way that humans conduct themselves. So these are kind of universal expressions of the way of our temptations and, um, and even the ways that we are reconciled with one another. Um, and to take that away, to take away some universal would completely take away Niebuhr's entire goal, the entire, like all of his main contributions. What if the universal is something like freedom? Um, I'm wondering, just listening to you talk, I'm wondering if in an age of algorithms and um, just kind of the absurdity of individualism, what I mean by that is like the ways in which we try to make ourselves individuals by defining ourselves against someone else. Yeah. Um, if, if a true freedom, someone who can break out of that system and live as an individual, uh, is that a point of connection? Could that be... Yeah. Uh, could, could freedom be the kind of thing, especially in an, in, in our day, um, in which there is, you know, whether we would say there's a crisis of freedom, I mean, uh, or, or not, I mean, it does seem like the, the systems that encapsulate us in everyday, uh, ways, both in terms of, we've talked about social media, but we could talk about all kinds of systems, um, could a value of freedom breaking out of those systems be a point of connection to the outside world? Yeah, actually, ironically, dude, you nailed it. I think ironically Niebuhr uses Kierkegaard's concept of, of anxiety as the basis of his understanding of sin. And to, this is existential, but it's also universal, you know, and it's universal because it's existential and vice versa, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he uses this as the bedrock for like our anxiety is constantly wanting to throw us into something. Um, our homelessness is always wanting us to find a home. And this oftentimes leads to pride. Um, this oftentimes leads to resignation and, you know, not wanting to do anything. Um, but we have to be those people with the uneasy conscience at the center who are aware of our sin and are aware of our temptations um, so this is, you know, applicable to anybody who's Christian or not Christian, Niebuhr says, to any world power, 
there is an anxiety there that is leading them to want to fulfill some mission that is perhaps sinful uh, that we can critique, you know, from a Christian perspective. I, I'm aware that we may be out of time, but I did have a thought when you mentioned uh, like a purely subjective approach to like scripture. Um, and I do think that the hyper, like, you know, Kierkegaard talks about inwardness, the hyper emphasis on the individual could lead to a kind of reader response approach to scripture that becomes absurd. And it, it can, you know, I think we see some of the effects of that in our world. And you mentioned kind of some of the, uh, what has become these like, right. <laughs> what it has to do with being right wing. I'm not sure, but, but, but what, it, what has become, uh, approaches to truth that are just absurd. Um, yeah. you know, you get what I'm saying. I don't have to, uh, I'll just go ahead and say it. I'm talking about Trump. Right. Trumpers. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. we are openly critical of Trump here on the Love just, I'll, podcast. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you see this like hyper reader response view, but there's also like, um, I mean, I, or, I mean, so I guess I'm thinking about a bit more sophisticated approach would be like the Lectio Divina approach to reading scripture, which is still very much like, it's more meditative, but it's very inward and very much like, what is this? How is this speaking to me? That sort of thing. And I, I mean, I would at least just highlight that there are, I mean, I think a Kevin Van Hooser who's written a couple books on um, hermeneutics uh, and what has been called, I think he's backed away from this himself, but the theological interpretation of scripture, um, which sound it's very Bartian in a way, but it's saying that communities make meaning uh, together as, as, so it's not, it's not, me the single individual it's sort of me in a group of people uh but uh and there is a role of the spirit i mean so again we're to well that would that would be i think radical orthodoxy would follow that and also narrative theology of the they draw from wittgenstein's like uh, language games that we're right. all kind of using the same language games in our community right to read this. And, yeah and i think and that doesn't have to mean that there is no you know again with kierkegaard like there is objective truth there but we can only get at that objective truth in our own subjectivity. Um, we can't take we can't take our sort of leave from our place in this world um, to get a vantage point from which we could view the word of God in itself. It, it's always coming to us all, you know, in Heidegger's language, always already situated uh, in our um, in our subject. That's where the Niebuhr comes through is that Niebuhr is only breaking. Niebuhr is only trying to um, find this point of contact within these scripturally revealed and existentially experienced um, modes. He's not appealing to a rationalism, you know, um, but to us, if anything, a self-awareness. So, all right. Um, so I would say that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. Um, I want to thank Dr. Hudson again for stopping by. I want to thank you, our listeners, uh, for tuning in. Make sure you like or subscribe. Write us a good review if you're digging it. And make sure you follow us on Twitter at LoveThyNieber for news and updates. And uh, we'll throw some good Nieber quotes up there every once in a while, too. Uh, so thanks again, everybody, and stay safe out there.